0: That night the city
1: burnt, and the mother church of the city burnt with her, and yet the tower and the fire still stand, soaring to the sky, and I feel that's an emblem of the eternal majesty and love of God.
0: Greetings. You are tuned into the Miserable Offenders Podcast. Pull up a chair and join the conversation as we seek answers to life's big questions, drawing wisdom from the well of traditional Anglican theology. This is a production of the
1: North American Anglican. Well, greetings and welcome to the Miserable Offenders podcast. My name is Jesse Nigro. I'm the editor of the North American Anglican Journal. and I'm your host. I'm today I'm joined by our co-host, Father Isaac Rayberg. Welcome, Father.
0: Uh, good morning, Jesse. Uh, yeah, this is Father Isaac Rayburg. I'm the rector of All Saints Anglican Church in San Antonio, Texas, and the canon for liturgy in the Anglican Diocese of the West in, the, uh, in Cana.
1: Excellent. And as canon of liturgy in the Anglican Diocese of the West in Cana, I'm sure that uh, this book we've been going through by the late Reverend Dr. Peter Toon on uh, common prayer has had a lot of things or topics that has piqued your interests over the past few weeks. Um, anything in particular about Tune or this book that uh, we've already covered that sort of strikes you as out of place or um, particularly prescient in our current moment in Anglicanism?
0: Um, well, Toon has been one of my, my absolute favorite authors. I think I mentioned that um, on our first episode of this, and I, I, I really wish I could have been here for the other two episodes that I missed. Oh, they, were, they were so good. Um, but yeah, Toon has been... We wish you been, been here
1: too. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, Toon has, uh, has been one of, um, one, one of the greats for, for, uh, for classical Anglicanism. Uh, for a long time, and he was a big part of my introduction as I was coming back to my my roots in Anglicanism. Uh, I, I, I like that in the very last sentence of the section y'all covered last week, um, when he said, "In fact, this destruction is already well, adv- well advanced already in North America, since a generation now exists." For whom the tradition of authentic common prayer has not been a living experience and that is absolutely true in In my, mm. my journeys for, for uh, just in Anglicanism in general but especially diocesan um, doing my diocesan duties that has been the biggest thing is so many of our clergy and our people have never experienced anything but the 20th century liturgical revisions and um, even even when they're in their best form it's just not quite the same uh, and and you know I, I had wrote I wrote a, an article for North American Anglican right after the ACNA's 2019 was officially released at, at assembly about why I'm not as grumpy about it and part of part of that was that it's trying to be that bridge right. but it has to make that concession to to those that have never never experienced anything and um, you know, that, that's that's kind of what they were thinking pastorally. And while I don't like it, I, I, I kind of agree.
1: Sure. It's an interesting thing um, because whenever you have to make a bridge between something that is sort of inherently flawed and what you might call um, the right side of the shore, um, that flawed side is going to sort of color everything that's going on right Um, and I think uh, you know I mentioned to Andrew maybe last week that um, I'm really interested in you know the the 2019 prayer book that the ACNA has put out you know having said all this it probably was an admirable effort and I I think I'm kind of ready to admit that given (laughs) sort of what it's what its intentions were um But I'm far more interested in like the twenty thirty-five book of you know or the twenty sixty-two you know like I want to see what the full transition looks like um, before I judge this one if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, You know, and and I remember going through uh, some tune had made for I think I think it was commissioned by the Anglican Mission in America and then the Prayer Book Society. Had uh, worked with it, but but Tune was the main guy behind it, kind of a modern English rendering of the classical, and, and he was saying, okay, this is the bridge to get you back to the classical, mm-hmm. and um, you know, I, I used that with a home group when I was in my uh, my, my diaconate and my postulancy um, to do evening prayer with a home group, um, and it was it was fine. It's it's actually one of the approved liturgies in our in our diocese, but. Um, you could tell that it was provisional. I mean, the, the language wasn't... It felt kind of like a draft, as good as it was. And sure. as and I think as good as the 2019 is, there's still something provisional about it. Now, I think a lot of people in the ACNA would be up in arms, you know, arguing against that point. But But it does feel, to me, still a little provisional.
1: Right. Yeah, well... I mean, and again, so many of these judgments, and, and obviously we don't expect every listener to um, agree 100% with everything that you or I say, or, or it's not as though you and I are agreed on everything, <coughs> but um, when you m- make judgments like this on sort of the qualities of a prayer book... The big um, consideration is of course sort of where you put the goalposts. You know, what are the, what's right. the ideal, what are the standards? And if your standards are relatively high, and I, I tend to think that in the Anglican tradition taking, taking the long view back to Cranmer's first draft of the Book of Common Prayer, um, we have good reason to sort of have high standards when it comes to commonality. And um, there's a pretty darn consistent tradition that is not monolithic, but almost monolithic <laughs> for for <laughs> centuries. And then there's some kind of explosion that takes place. And much as I understand that... Um, sort of a, re- a return to an earlier norm is going to require picking up the pieces um, I guess I'm just sort of anxious for any kind of measure that can get us back there and and actually in a position of common prayer uh, like Dr. Toon is talking about here I mean he doesn't mm-hmm he doesn't use neutral words to describe the situation right um, the destruction is well advanced <laughs> right? does not sound like a, a neutral appraisal
0: and, and I think one of the things we're just going to have to deal with for at least another generation or two is that there will not be truly common common prayer for a while Right. Um you know, I, I rejoice that in our diocese and I think this is the norm for most dioceses uh, um, certainly it, it's the case in Cana, but I think it's also true for most of the diocese in the ACNA. Um, there is a list of approved liturgies and on that list is almost always the classical prayer books. I rejoice in that. yeah um, that's there's good. you know, but that does mean it's not truly common.
1: Yeah, um, it is, common prayer is optional. <laughs> well, at least yeah. it's an option, right? <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know, we're, we're, there's going to be variety, at which, you know, a certain amount of variety is just the way things have always been. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've often likened the, uh, the classical prayer books to Shakespeare. You know, it's, it's heavy on, on the script, very low on the stage direction and uh, Mm -hmm. so that means there's going to be variety in stage direction and even which options one takes in the script Um, but unfortunately we're we're going to have to have some separate scripts for a while unless you do like what quincy did where they just say okay this is our only one Um, but then you have everybody saying why did you choose that one (laughs) which is exactly what happened with quincy
1: (laughs) yeah no i thought it was a peculiar choice myself me too. Um, say, Father, I I was uh, reminded just recently of a an exchange on the subject of common prayer that took place on the Miserable Offenders uh, Facebook page, and I think both you and I um, sort of jumped in on that exchange. But uh, what what was your what was your take from that? I can I can actually. Um, read maybe one of the co- comments that was, uh, that I responded to.
0: <clears throat>
1: but one of our listeners um, says this. I don't see the importance of adhering to the Book of Common Prayer. I think Peter Lightheart and James Jordan have frontiered a better way of approaching liturgy. Where we appreciate our roots, but we aren't beholden to the needs of the times of Thomas Cranmer, etc. Um, and he goes on to say, I'm not persuaded that adherence to classical Book of Common Prayer forms of worship are that important. I think you guys are seeking a remedy in a place which will not give the benefits you purport. Oof. What do you think? <laughs>
0: Um. Yeah. So I had a couple of follow up questions for, uh, for for the listener, and um, I, I appreciated the the exchange, the uh, the candor of it all.
1: Absolutely. Yep.
0: And, and uh, one of the first things I, I I wanted to know was what what his particular um, tradition or background is. You know, is, is is he an Anglican? Is he is he working within our our schema? And the answer was no. Um. But that he is. He he said that he was. Um kind of the non-denominational charismatic type but that he had he had brought in um some of the liturgical practices and i think that's kind of common these days in in a lot of american evangelicalism maybe not common but it is it is a trend um and and obviously
1: reading lightheart and james jordan is you know it's not a bad thing so right he's uh getting some some good theology which is led him in a liturgical direction
0: and and you see somebody like Lightheart who um, has has not really nailed himself down to one of the historic traditions and um, when asked about that I I, I hope I'm not misrepresenting what I remember from Lightheart well um, well,
1: I I would just say uh, I think that Presbyterians, many Presbyterians would agree with you yeah, but I think he is a Presbyterian. <laughs> well,
0: right, but I, I meant in terms of kind of plugging himself into one of the liturgies, you know, historical right. liturgies no, and that I, sort of thing. I hear you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He is. He is a, and and he and if, if memory serves, did, didn't he kind of found a new Presbyterian denomination, or he was part of the. Um, um. The CREC, he was,
1: he was in CREC. I think he might be OPC now, but I, I'm okay. the wrong guy to ask, probably.
0: Yeah, I, I, I haven't, I haven't followed some of those, but largely what he said is, hey, you know, this is where I am, this is where I'm going to be, and you know, a bloom where you're planted, and I appreciate that, I really do. Mm-hmm. But um, whenever you're going to try to take A historic liturgy a historic tradition and sprinkle that into where you currently are um it's going to be somewhat buffet style and that that's just the way it's going to be you know i when i was kind of towards the end of my time in the messianic movement um you know there's a lot of this in the messianic movement because there was a a there's this idea that we want to be liturgical in a Jewish way but we obviously can't do everything that the rabbis do because there's just some theological problems there and so you end up having a lot of proposed liturgies that have merits one way or the other and kind of towards the end of my time um yeah we we were we were involved in some of that trying to do that and it was it was a smorgasbord um for better or for worse and you know our hearts were in the right place but it, but it was a smorgasbord,
1: right? And that's interesting. Um, and I think it was what I found interesting from uh, our listener, who, uh, hey, you know, hope you're still listening, <laughs> um, uh, was that he he sort of was of the opinion that as much freedom on the local level as you can give the pastor. Um, is all for the better and so sort of to have that kind of uh well this pastor thinks we need to read five chapters from the bible or you know or or this or that and sort of um I, i suppose address the particular needs of the congregation in a liturgically different way um was sort of the the point that he was making and um to me, I think, well understanding that you're coming from a non denominational background and even, you know, in a situation like Lighthearts where there isn't really a strong liturgical tradition, I mean the Presbyterians were kind of founded on rejecting set liturgies, for goodness sakes. Right. Um <laughs> uh, but when you're when you're coming from sort of the wild, wild west you, you feel like you're maybe adding all sorts of order, you know, when you're deciding to do things in a set way. Um, but from where I'm coming from, the idea of having any pastor be able to tweak the liturgy however he wants, um, and, and, and our listener even said, you know, I, I think the danger of potential heterodoxy is worth making sure that people have that kind of freedom and i think you know just from a prudential and a pastoral sort of concern i just have to see yep i think that's just where we disagree you know
0: absolutely and it really is a fundamental disagreement on core assumptions you know the part of the core assumptions in the english reformation and i would say the reformers in general is that on whatever that that level is. So for England, it would have been that national level. There needs to be a certain amount of uniformity in practice so that there's a uniformity in doctrine. And that's the only way you can do that, because we are, you know, the, the individual congregations are not the fundamental unit of the church. And, and, and it should be pointed out, that's not what, you know, in the definition of the church in the articles, Article 19, when it speaks about a congregation of, Faithful men, where the word of God is rightly preached and the sacraments duly administered, that's not congregationalist speaking. You know, right. though people have said that. You know, so so, yeah. That's that's a fundamental assumption of the English Reformation that is just not shared in American evangelicalism. In American evangelicalism, the individual church is the fundamental unit the individual congregation and you might form associations for the sake of um accountability and being able to do some stuff together but ultimately the autonomy of the individual congregation is sacrosanct and that's just not the case in the
1: english reformation right and i think there's also this this other issue um and maybe this term gets overused in Anglican circles, but I do think that um, lex orandi, lex credendi, is an important principle in this conversation. If you have if the way of your prayer is the way of your belief and you have a radically different way of prayer in every congregation, then you legitimately have a situation where people may be believing radically different things <laughs> from place to place and I you know I don't know what sort of denomination or you know um, a group or church another person belongs to but that kind of situation should be unacceptable on the Anglican level and of course the sort of liturgical chaos that we experience in modern Anglicanism, that leads to the theological divergence is something that many of us are constantly lamenting. We had we had this, and
0: you know, just to kind of give an illustration on on a local level, um, you know, our, our our parish came from a continuum background, and in the continuum, part of the reason for the split from the Episcopal Church back before I was born was um, the change in the prayer book, and so it was you know we are going to be in 1928 then in parentheses and the missile (laughs) people, Uh, you know? Yeah. And, and so what, what tended to happen, my understanding is this is, this is pretty common and and our listeners who are in the continuum, please feel free to correct me. But my understanding is very few people do a straight up missile service because it's too complex, but also very few people do a straight up book of common prayer service because you want to add those quote unquote Catholic elements. So we were in a situation when, when I first was at this parish where our local liturgical practices, not, not anything uncommon, not anything heterodox, nothing like that. But they were so eclectic that nobody could, could celebrate the Eucharist here unless they had been trained here and so the bishop when he came he couldn't celebrate um um you know visiting clergy couldn't celebrate which meant that you know that 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 disincentivized (laughs) clergy who were here from taking vacation and and you know kind of that self-care sure because you can't trust anybody with what we're doing and you know it's not uncommon not 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 nothing malicious there at all It, it was but when when i when I became the rector i i I realized and that you know the bishop told me I had to do this anyway, and i I agreed with him gotta get back to us just stick to the script uh because otherwise it's just too eclectic yeah, yeah and it, it does influence, example, and it does influence theology um because some of those elements that get added in contradict the theology of the articles or there's tension that has to be explained. And if you're not theologically savvy, you miss it, but it, but it creates confusion theologically. Whereas once I got back to the script and I was like, okay, we're going to, you know, keep to the book of common prayer. We're going to, um, you know, we're going to quote from the fathers and the articles, you know, and, and the other major Anglican and, um, reformers and that sort of thing. Uh, when we're, when we're doing teaching and preaching, it amazed me. We're going through the articles right now in Sunday school. We do that once every couple of years. That's great. We got to the, to the, to the articles that are the hard ones, right? The election and justification and all that. Sure. The people had no problem. There was <laughs> no, there was no complaints. There was no, but, but, but they're just like, yeah, of course that makes sense. I was astounded. <laughs> I was like, okay, you've taken four weeks worth of teaching and took it down to one. What am I going to do now? <laughs> oh, no. yeah, that's Which was great. It was a wonderful problem to have.
1: Good for you. Yeah. To your your congregation is more uh, thoroughly catechized than you'd realize. That's great. Um, and it was
0: largely the, the liturgy and, and you know, preaching the text. That's what did it. Hmm.
1: Well that's a, I love that kind of story because so often we hear complaints about, uh, you know, uh, the articles are irrelevant, the, the traditional Book of Common Prayer would never work here, you know, um, but I just love to hear stories about people who just try it, you know, just pick it up and try it, stick with it for a while. And to hear that that good fruits do, in fact, come out. I mean, it's something I believe, but it's just nice to sort of get evidence from the real world as well. So that's awesome. Uh, Speaking of liturgy, though, should we uh, turn our attention to the Reverend Dr. Peter Toon for a a brief moment here, Father? (laughs)
0: indeed yeah we'll get we'll get to the point of what we're doing here right that's right
1: well you know I think um, some people enjoy the banter some people enjoy the book um, if you're more of a book person then I'm sorry for the last couple episodes but uh, you know, we do try to strike a balance here and if you're miserably offended then I suppose uh, you're in good company but um, we are currently for the new listener Going through a book called Knowing God Through the Liturgy by Peter Toon, which can be found at a website, a terrific website called newscriptorium.com that has tons of free classical Anglican works that you can read online. But if you click on the Toon collection and pull up this book, we are currently in the second chapter and about to begin. Uh, a new section called Shaky Foundations and um, I'll just go ahead and read this maybe first two paragraphs and we'll see what there is to uh, unpack here how does that sound? Sounds good. Alright. Shaky Foundations the charge that these new books are revisionist can be substantiated on three major grounds. Uh, And for the reader or listener, he's referring here to the Book of Common Prayer, 1979, and I believe the Book of Occasional Services, 1985.
0: Um, A Book of Alternative Services. Alternative
1: Services. Okay. Which is a Church of England book, I believe. Uh,
0: Canada. Canada.
1: Oh, okay. Got it.
0: And England was experimenting with other ones at the same time, but yeah, I think he's... I think I I could be wrong on that, but I I thought he was talking about the Canadian one. Okay,
1: good deal. Well, we're so there are two specific books in mind that he has in mind here: the seventy-nine Book of Common Prayer of the Episcopal Church, and the Book of Alternative Services. So, the charge, excuse me, the charge that these new books are revisionists can be substantiated on three major grounds. First of all, as we have been noting they introduce a new concept and practice of public worship. Out of the church door goes a common or shared form, and in the door comes a variety, which is only intended to be a stage on the way to more variety. (laughs) Already, liturgical commissions have produced, and even now, they continue to produce, more experimental forms of public worship, soon, there will be only a loose-leaf book of possible options. One important development since 1979 has been the move to produce services based on the principle of inclusivism with non-excluding language. Already in the Psalter of Book of Common Prayer 1979, this principle has been utilized, but Prayer Book Studies 30, a 1990 document, given Further limited approval by the General Convention of 1991 is an example of this novelty. With the continuing trial use of its inclusivist liturgies, a further nail is hammered into the coffin of the common prayer tradition, all in capitals, and in the authority of Holy Scripture in the Church. For if God be the Lord who reveals himself to us through the words of Scripture, then God may be said to name Himself. As mere sinful creatures, we cannot choose to name him, but we address him after his own self naming and direction. I shall return to this theme in chapter eleven below. <laughs> Lots to unpack there, father. Anything jumping out immediately.
0: Um yeah, we, we certainly, you know, since he since he um published this, um the 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 fruit has been true that kind of the loose leaf book of possible options has become the norm. Um, Yeah. You know, whether it's through projected liturgy or always printed liturgy and, you know, using the actual prayer book goes out the window and this becomes very bad pastorally because it reintroduces the clericalism that the book of common prayer was trying to eliminate. Mm -hmm. Each priest, each parish chooses their own adventure and the congregation is subject to the whims of that pastor that 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 rector that vicar so now no longer can the congregation take the physical book home do their devotions from it um you know your prayer book and your hymnal and your bible being those things that that shape you as a christian it's you know the, the you know nobody uses that book but the priest because the priest is assembling the liturgies and we certainly have seen that's the case.
1: Yeah. I think, um, you know, once again, sort of, uh, our listener who, who commented on the Facebook page sort of reminds me that I guess, you know, my background is sort of non-denominational and, and actually grew up Pentecostal. um, Coming from that world, I can see how this would be utterly not problematic at all. Because Mm -hmm. there's a sort of sense in which, as you pointed out, each congregation is its own brand, right? And they're kind of in a somewhat of a competitive evangelizing space within a city amongst other congregations with different brands. and so they'll have their own pastoral, theological quirks, and of course the worship and the style of the, the way things are done are going to reflect this. But Anglicanism needs to be understood to be um, coming from a very Catholic direction when it comes when we start talking about common prayer, and by that I mean. Um, you know when I was visiting England with uh, a friend who's Catholic, he remarked to me that he loves going into a new church that he's never been before that's Catholic and f- having a sense of sort of pride of ownership, like this is his this is his church. He belongs here, yeah, you know. And um, much as I wish that I could have said that about some of the Church of England churches when I was present, um, <clears throat> it wasn't as strong of an identification, but in part because this is uh, something that Anglicanism uh, lost a hold of and has lost a grip of um, compared to Roman Catholicism in some ways. Although I think, you know, the Roman Catholic Church does have this issue and it's only getting worse. But there's a sense in which you should be able to go into an Anglican church and say, here are some reasonable expectations. A, I should be able to follow this liturgy. (laughs) B, they should be teaching the theology of the Anglican formularies. You know, I mean, and that is something that Toon is sort of lamenting um, goes by the wayside, and as you said, it only gets worse when you add in um, no longer even feeling like you have to use a set of approved options, but when you can employ the overhead projector, then you know God only knows what's going to show up there. You really are at the at the whims of the the individual minister at the congregational level.
0: Yeah, I um. I, one of the podcasts I listen to is the Young Tractarians, and they're out of England. Oh yeah, and great. Um, yeah, yeah, they're a little, a little bit uh, spikier than than I am, but I really enjoy their insight, especially that they are um, championing the 1662 and to a lesser extent the missile tradition, right? As a and and very much as opposed to something like Common Worship. And I, I remember a tweet that I saw from them. A few months ago, where they did the math on in the current Roman rite. So we're not even talking the Anglican rite. We're talking the current Roman rite, the Novus Ordo. How many how how many options there were um, for all the different Eucharistic prayers? Because there's various proper prefaces for different occasions, and there's various options sure. for each of those occasions. To where there's there was something in the in the neighborhood of if, if memory serves six or seven figures worth of total options mathematically
1: <laughs>
0: and you know we're, yeah we're not talking six or seven options but six or seven figures worth so in, in the hundreds wow. of thousands or, or 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 millions of memory serves um, if you just do all the math now of course some of those are never going to be used but you would never be able to hear every option in a lifetime and we have we have the same situation with a lot of these alternative liturgies. I was looking for my notes just now um, from the from from the ACNA assembly that just passed on on the on the prayer book. Um, I I attended all of the uh, new prayer book breakouts and took copious notes, but I cannot find them on my iPad right now. <laughs> but I, I, I do remember that one of the things they pointed out was in, in switching from the. 79's options down to just the Eucharistic prayer. We're not talking proper prefaces and all that, but just the basic Eucharistic prayers. There ended up being going down from about eight different options to two. Which is great. Yeah, and of yeah, course, move in the in right the, direction. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, because in the 28 we have one. <laughs> you know, in the right. 1662 there is one.
1: <laughs> no doubt. Yeah, that's, and again it's it's a bridge from sort of an unfortunate situation, towards a better situation. And I think we have to, at the very least, um, uh, appreciate the improvement there. So, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's pretty amazing that there are so many options. Well, and, you know, it, it really breaks down um, the ability to sort of have reasonable expectations that you will be able to find a home parish. If you go traveling, you know. I mean, yeah. I, I know people find that very difficult. If they, if they move, they say, "Oh, look, there's a there's an Anglican parish in town. Good." Now, you can't. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, you have to scour that website and and try and figure out. You know, well, what liturgy are they using? Is
0: is this <laughs> is
1: is the priest a male or female? I can't tell. You know, <laughs> I mean, I mean, these things are not. It's not just an easy determination of, oh, these are our people. I can jump right in, um, right. if only. But um, beyond that, let's see. Was, was there anything else that jumped out from that? Uh,
0: we had the that, inclusive
1: language thing. Yeah. What did you think of the inclusive? It, and I know that um, you know one of the big <clears throat> things that people have complained about from the 79 prayer book is uh, there's the psalm that says, "Behold the man," and I think they change it to "Behold the person."
0: Yeah, um, so which Psalm a, one, yeah, which was. is
1: obviously uh, it's it's foretelling Christ, right? So, "Behold the man" ought to be okay. <laughs> yeah,
0: so this is um, this is from Psalm Psalm one. is is kind of the classic illustration. Um, in the um, in the Coverdale salt, I'm sorry. In the in the '79 Um I'm trying to find it real quick. I, I just I happen to have a '79. Um, so the verse, the first verse we of, of, of it, the first but... psalm. Yeah, right. <laughs> the first verse of the first psalm is: "Happy are they who have not walked in the counsel of the wicked, nor uh... lingered in the way of sinners, nor sat in the seats of the scornful." In the um, the Coverdale, as you find in the 1662, because um, I have my 1662 right next to my 79, and again, don't tell anybody. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, the, one of the interesting things about the 1662, unlike all the American ones, is the page numbers are not universal. The layout is not the same everywhere. Oh. Um, the American church has always made the layout ex- totally the same, which I yeah. love. And so, yeah, Psalm 1-1 um, in the Coverdale is, Blessed is the man that hath not walked in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stood in the way of sinners, and hath right. not sat in the seat of the scornful. So like you said, yeah, it, it's been widely interpreted for ages and ages and ages as a messianic um, implications, which gets destroyed uh, by the 79's rendering. Right.
1: Which just seems like, um, you know, as as much as... I'm not particularly sympathetic to, oh, we need to change the language, especially of scripture, to try and shoehorn sort of modern uh, ideas of inclusivism in. It, at the very least, you'd think that they'd be able to tell theologically, you know, when certain passages just have other implications going on. But that it just, you know, just this kind of goes to show how either A, clumsy the operation was, or B, potentially malevolent it may have been. Um, because obviously Dr. Toon is suggesting that um, there at this point there were people out to sort of... Uh, Use God's non-preferred pronouns, you could say, <laughs> you know, um, not take uh, him at his word and and call him a, a she and um, all of these things. So uh, yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: One of the principles that went into the 2019, and not to keep hammering this home, but it's it's an interesting just kind of contrast when it comes to liturgical revision. Um, in the in the big breakout session on the Psalter. They had a team of, of folks working on the Psalter, and they wanted to, they are calling it kind of the renewed Coverdale or something to that effect. Mm-hmm. And um, so there were times when they judged that the, um, the, the male pronoun, um, when it's specifically contextually referring to humanity as a whole, was going to miscommunicate things today. But they but whenever it was um had messianic implications, they made sure not to do that. So, again, Psalm one one goes to blessed is the man who has not walked in the council of the ungodly in the uh, in the twenty nineteen. Um, yeah, it was, it was a very interesting process. And, and they did look at. So they in, in, they looked at the Hebrew. They, the Hebrew scholars on the team said that Coverdale, Miles Coverdale, probably would have gotten a C in their class for his Hebrew skills, uh, <laughs> which which I agree with. That's um, funny, but uh, poetically, it's 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 you know Coverdale was just a genius, and so they compared Coverdale from the sixteen sixty two. They compared the seventy nine. They compared. Um, the proposed revision that was being spearheaded by T. S. Eliot and C. S. Lewis in the 1960s,
1: which um, uh, Toon actually mentions a few paragraphs up here.
0: Yeah, he yeah he did. Um, and but it was a real interesting the way they were doing that. But but yeah, there were, one of the principles was if it's messianic, we don't mess with the we don't try to inclusivize anything
1: messianic. Interesting. Well, um, that's probably the safer way to go. Um, Well, hey, should we uh, take on a couple more paragraphs here and see, see where Dr. Toon leads us?
0: In the second place, there is a definite weakening of basic Christian doctrine in the new books. In fact, it is not claiming too much to say that there is evidence of a definite move to revise Christian doctrine in some places within them. One does not have to look very far with a trained eye to see that the doctrines of the Holy Trinity, the glorious person and saving work of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the nature of God's salvation have all been either modified or revised. Many good and faithful Episcopalians have not noticed this doctrinal change because they have in charity assumed that the BCP 1979 has the same doctrine as that of the BCP 1928, and have read classical doctrine into the words they have read. Take for example the doctrine of the Trinity. This doctrine has been preserved in the old form of the Gloria glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost, used at the end of the canticles and Psalms in the BCP 1979 as well as in the blessing given at the end of public worship by the bishop or priest. It has been lost however in other places most obviously in the opening blessing of God in rites 1 and 2 of the Eucharist. Instead of, blessed be God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, for our God is one God and three persons, we are given a formula which is a form of the ancient heresy of modalism. God is one but has three names. The, definic- the definite articles are left out, and thus, instead of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we are given Father, Son, and
1: Holy Spirit. Wow. Um, of course, the first thing that jumps to my name is the Lutheran satire cartoon, of the uh, the two Irish guys who St. Patrick <laughs> is trying to use an analogy for the doctrine of the Trinity, and they say that's modalism, Patrick.
0: <laughs> My sister sent me that link that just this week. She goes to a Lutheran, an LCMS church in um, in New Mexico. She and her family, and she says, "Have you seen this? This is great." I was like, "Oh yes, Sarah. We <laughs> we, <laughs> we watch this every Trinity Sunday." <laughs>
1: It's, so great. it's classic oh, absolutely so of course you know anytime mm-hmm. I, i'm looking into ancient heresies those little voices pop into my head you know yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but this is this is an interesting uh change that i wasn't aware of um but i mean i think the point is well made um that whether it was intentional or not, uh, so much of heresy can be done by accident, right? And, and when you change the words of the prayer, you inevitably begin to change the meaning of the words in the minds of the faithful.
0: Yeah, as a child, um, you know, I was born in 79, so um, you know, we, we kind of, as a child, were were 50-50 Catholic and Episcopalian. Hmm. And I loved the Book of Common Prayer as a child, which is kind of weird for a kid, but I really did. (laughs) Um, (laughs) but of course it was the 79. And so when I returned to, to these roots, a big part of it was rediscovering the book of common prayer. And initially it was the 79 for me. And I, I totally read orthodoxy. I mean, I, I charitably looked at everything in the 79 with orthodoxy. I would not have seen that in a modalistic way. But as I discovered the classical prayer books, what I realized is that there is kind of a lowest common denominator theology in the 79, which while it can be interpreted perfectly orthodox, it gives enough wiggle room to interpret it heterodox as well.
1: And I mean, lest we need any evidence that this can have dangerous consequences, look at the heterodoxy and the outright heresy that is mainstream in the Episcopal Church today. Right. I mean, and and I don't want to suggest that it's just the effects of liturgical chaos. I think that the very people who were in here tinkering with the liturgy, some of whom were probably pretty orthodox, but others of whom were undoubtedly of a revisionist bent and were out to get different doctrines sort of uh, permissible within their church. I mean, I think there's those some of those same people are, you know, probably being phased out, but have been in leadership for a long time. So it's it's a both and thing. But um, I don't think there can be any doubt that this is the time when some major changes were taking place in the Episcopal Church, uh, a huge one being obviously the ordination of women.
0: Yeah, and we see that kind of the seeds of that theological liberalism were coming in Before that, I mean, you know, even even in the Church of England, you know, Newman was fighting against. Yeah. Against some of that 19th century form of liberalism. So so, you know, this was this was sinking in already. But it was it seemed to be one of those situations where you had to kind of cross your fingers behind your back when you're saying the creed if you were of that bent. Right. And what happens in the 1960s is that as those liturgical changes were made um, in part to accommodate that within the church. Not to force liberalism, but to
1: accommodate liberalism. Right, which shows that there was obviously some some degree of institutional power had been gained by those who would have preferred that in the first place.
0: Right, there was um, our, our friends at... Um, Oh gosh, which which not not the sacramentalists, but the um, Anglican Audio uh, Faith and Honor, they had yes. an interview a few months ago with a fellow who was doing um, significant studies on those 1960s changes, and yeah, he says yeah, the, the documents that came out later from the Liturgical Commission was showing that yeah, there was definite agenda involved, and that might not have been at eight fifteen, you know, that might not have been happening mm-hmm. on the presiding Bishops office or even all the House of Bishops, but there was enough allowance for that that the liturgical commission was was very much wanting to 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 push an agenda um whether it was known by you know whether the House of Bishops was aware of that or whether they got snowed is a is a good question i I couldn't say
1: yeah well that's i mean it's it's interesting um yeah, it's, it's interesting to sort of track this change historically. It's also kind of depressing. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> but
1: um, uh, it, it does sort of bring to mind, you know, this sort of talk of, well, it was first, um, first it was just an allowance, you know. Right. Um, uh, it reminds me of uh, Richard John Newhouse, who wrote uh, about Newhouse Law. In uh, in the an article in First Things years ago, he's now passed, but he was the uh, editor of First Things, and he was a former LCMS pastor who became Roman Catholic. But um, his Newhouse Law um, goes something like, "Oh, how does it go? Um, wherever Orthodoxy." is optional it will inevitably be excluded or something to the to that right yeah and um boy you know I don't know I don't know what to make of that I don't know if if it's 100% true um you know I think he was fleeing certain things to become Roman Catholic and you know, might be surprised to see some of the things that have become mainstream in, in that communion um, today, but um, it, it does make one think. You know, uh, it's it's a terrible idea to <laughs> to make allowances for non-orthodox ideas and to be happy that well at least orthodoxy is being permitted. You know, that's it's not. And that's a, really a
0: Go ahead. Oh, and that's that's really a big, big focus of the Reformation period was, um, you know, the dis- discipline is one of the marks of the church. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and and you know that that's one of the reasons why we've always said it's good to have bishops is to keep the priests accountable. But that means the bishops need to be orthodox themselves, and they need to be keeping the priests accountable. <laughs>
1: right. No doubt, no doubt. Well, uh, why don't I read this last, or one more paragraph, which I think gets us about halfway through this section. And um, that way we'll have a good starting place to pick up next time here. All right. Um, Another obvious example of change is in the use of a revised form of the Apostles' Creed. Though, in the original Latin, and in the long-used English translation, the virginal concept of our Lord is clearly set forth in the words, He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. The revised form in Morning Prayer Rite 2 has the words, He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. The aim of the new words is to allow people who do not believe in the miraculous conception of Jesus to think of his conception as if it were like that of Isaac or John the Baptist. Normal, but special. Such an interpretation is, of course, heresy. In fact, as you survey the theological content of the BCP 17, 1979, you notice a general tendency to treat and present Jesus as the, quote, perfect man in whom the divine presence dwells. That is, he becomes for all of us a supreme example of God's presence and as well of our response to God in faith. To think of Jesus only as a revelation of God and as a perfect example to us is surely something short of confessing him as my Lord and my God. (laughs) Wow, scary stuff when you think about it.
0: And that was historically one of the key um, points of debate in theology in that early form of theological liberalism was the virgin birth. Um, you know that that was one of the big things that that the theological liberals were were, were bucking against. And, and I find it I find it kind of interesting, you know, when, when speaking with skeptics even today. You know, people that you know, we'll have that kind of that same view of Christ. Oh, Jesus was a good man. He was a man who knew God and he's a good example for us. But I can't go to the point where I'm saying that he is my Lord and my God. Mm-hmm. Um, they almost always are going to doubt the virgin birth. And, and the funny thing is, they seem not to realize that people have always known that they'll always say something i don't believe in the virgin birth because virgins can't conceive
1: <laughs> right <laughs>
0: and, and they would say that's why it's a miracle my friend you, yeah. you don't don't you understand that we have never not known how where babies come from <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> humanity has known what's going on we wouldn't be claiming this if it wasn't I mean, we wouldn't be claiming this just so that we could exp- explain it away. This this is one of those areas where Christianity says, no, God did something new, something unique. That's why it's called a miracle. <laughs> Absolutely.
1: I mean, yeah, it's so laughable. I mean, isn't theological liberalism just... It, I can't tell if it's watered down Christianity or watered down skepticism. Because right. it, if you're going to be a, a, a real skeptic, then just... Mm-hmm you know, junk the whole thing. Don't try to sort of, well, I'm okay with going to church, but I'm not sure if I'm going to go in for miraculous things. Like, what are you even doing here then? You know, why, yeah, why, why, why would you why rain on to our to parade?
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, that... Yeah, well, I think that's what we're seeing nowadays is as the cultural... Um, impetus to be Christian in our culture is 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 lessening. You know, it's just not. You don't have the cultural capital for claiming the name Christian anymore, like you sure. used to. As that's happening, what we're what we're seeing is that those who would be like that just aren't coming to church. And why would they? Everything that they that they would get from church for being a non believer, a, a skeptic, or frankly a theological liberal, everything they would get from it. Um, they can get better out in the world without all the religious baggage.
1: Right. And since the our religious our society, baggage doesn't do anything for you. No, that's right. And our society now rewards the skeptic probably more than the Christian. Um, right. Really depending on what circles you travel in. So you don't get that, that benefit either. You no, know, that's, a, that's a great point. And I think it really is telling that... Um, all of the mainline sort of liberal Protestant denominations are bottoming out, um, steadily, you know, I mean, there's, there's decline across the board. All the church is sort of in a, in a contracting in a condensing phase. I like to say, you know, it's like you put a sauce on the stove and, and it condenses, you're gonna, some of the water is going to evaporate, but what you get, left there is, is hardier and sort of more rich. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that Orthodox churches are going through this as well, but the liberal ones are, I mean, the numbers are just astounding how quickly the decline has been. And I think it's because, yeah, if if what you're offering is watered down skepticism, then they can, you know, have their skepticism and Eat it too, I guess. That seems weird, <laughs> you know, out in the world. And and quite frankly, more people would probably rather go to brunch than church on a Sunday morning. So,
0: and that's another reason why having the rich roots that we you know that are, as an example, in the classical prayer book tradition is so important. If you know, let, let's let's not pick on the liberals so much. Let, let's let's kind of pick on a little bit more. You know, general conservative evangelicalism, kind of your big box, megachurch sure. life. Um, you know, if if you're really getting a concert and a self-help or a concert and a TED Talk guised in religious language, there comes a point where you can get a better concert out in the world and you can get a better TED Talk out in the world. Mm-hmm. And you and if it's not really about if it's just Jesus helps me have a better marriage um okay I can go I can go read a good book on marriage and get the same result. Yeah.
1: And, and no, so you're right. yeah. Um I it's this idea that you can take a secular package and fill it up with Christian material. You know, and yeah. and the content as Christian as it may be um eventually people are just not really going to recognize it. <laughs> right. You know, they're right. going to... What they're being formed by, and this is where, you know, liturgical theology is so important, is that your habits, the the repeated actions, the things that you actually do with your body do teach you spiritual things. There is content there. And when your actions are simply mimicking the lowest common denominator, the lowest hanging fruit of secular culture, but you're trying to do it in a Christian way or pack it full of Christian content, um, eventually the box doesn't hold what you're trying to put in it. And there's a disjunctiveness there. And people will be... What they're going to remember from church is the secular part that they're doing with their bodies,
0: you know, (laughs) more so
1: than any... Christian or maybe eventually pseudo Christian message that you're trying to reformat or repackage
0: yeah I mean the the church is naturally countercultural yeah and when it's not that's when you have corruption you have um, heterodoxy because you're going to be um Compromising with the world in some way or the other, and and that's uh, you know and that's just uh, it's just not worth it. I mean, that's really the bottom line. It's just not worth it.
1: (laughs) No, I mean, not if your your intent is to is to you know have a faithful community that is worshiping God and producing disciples and bringing new souls to to Christ. I mean. trying to use every sort of contemporary secular trick to get new people in the doors, um, well, congratulations, you've got people in a building. Well, you know, Britney Spears can do that, you know. Anybody can do that if you make it, you know, if you offer candy rather than Jesus. So, you know, it's, it's harder work, but... Offer people the Scriptures, offer them a worship experience that's informed by the Scriptures, um, and that's, of course, why we harp on the Common tr- Prayer tradition so much here, because it's tried and true. You know, it's like like C.S. Lewis says. You know, when you're hearing someone pray and they go off the, the script, you always have to be listening with one ear to make sure that you can really truly say Amen when they're done. Um, right. But when they stick to the script and you know, hey, this is our book that we share, then you can sort of enter into the prayer in a full way that doesn't require that sort of, you know, vigilant carefulness necessarily. Oh, Indeed. man, good stuff. <laughs> well, should we call it, call it a, an episode, Father? Yeah, that sounds good, and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll
0: continue on the same next time.
1: <laughs> sounds good, and hopefully, fingers crossed, say a prayer, we'll get all three voices in next time. Oh, that'd be great. It would. It would. All right, well, good talking to you. We'll see you later. Bye-bye. Bye. If you the spirit of our forefathers that built that grand building, I believe that that spirit is with us still and will help us to, to rebuild it one day when we've served and suffered a while a little longer. Build it again to the, to the glory of, of Jesus Christ. Miserable Offenders
0: is a production of the North American Anglican. Learn more at
1: n-o-r-t-h-a-m-anglican.com.